All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're kind of starting a new section of sorts in the letter, if there were sections in the letter. You know, when Paul wrote it, he didn't have chapter markings and things like that. But this is kind of a transition. Uh, Probably the third section of the letter, if we were mapping it out. And he's going to return to something that he started talking about back in chapter 1. So just as a means of reminder, you'll remember back in chapter 1, he told Timothy, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, vain discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So the mention of false doctrine infiltrating Ephesus in the opening chapter, in chapter 4, he's going to tell us some of the specific examples. He's really drilling down after uh, exhorting Timothy, encouraging Timothy, then talking about how the household of God is supposed to be run. Now he's going to deal with the issues. Um, I think if we wanted to sum sum it up here, the, the way we would describe the issues that he's dealing with is legalism and maybe you know, destructive legalism. Um, Now, a lot of things nowadays get called legalism, so we need to make sure we understand what legalism is and what isn't. I mean, if you hold up any kind of standard nowadays, it gets labeled legalism. That's not exactly true. But what is legalism? Well, legalism, in essence, is elevating opinions over the gospel, elevating opinions over the scriptures. That's if you don't dress a certain way, if you don't uh, carry a certain translation of Bible, if you don't sing a certain type of song. That, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about when we, when we talk about modern legalism. So the issue with, with this destructive type of legalism is that it really prevents a clear understanding or a clear grasp of the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, it, it, it really cripples the power of the Holy Spirit, and I don't mean that in a literal way. I mean that in, in, a, in how we view the Holy Spirit. Uh, what he's going to talk about specifically, just spoiler alert, uh, marriage and food. Th- those are the issues that are being elevated to biblical proportions in Ephesus. And so when we lift up things like marriage, and, and not the sanctity of marriage, uh, it, these, it's actually forbidding marriage, that marriage is not a good thing. We're going to talk about why that's entirely wrong. Uh, and, and food, and, and what, is, what are things like marriage and food? Well, they're God-sanctioned privileges. They're blessings that God has given us, and, and, and if we remove those or ignore those or forbid those for unscriptural reasons— then we lose the truth of having liberty in Christ. We, we lose the idea of God-ordained institutions and, and what we are grateful for, all those different kinds of things. Secondly, legalism destroys gratitude towards God. That's, that's a big issue because it breeds self-reliance. It breeds superiority. I know better than you. I do this, you don't, so I'm better, I'm more moral, I'm more holy. And if that's what I'm relying on, my ability to be more holy than you are, I'm going to fall woefully short of the standard of God. That, that's, that, that, that if I'm not leaning on God for personal holiness, I'm leaning on my ability to not eat something, not drink something, not read something, not 
then I'm leaning on, on the wrong thing. There's no reliance there. And, and so I, if I'm leaning on that for my personal holiness, there's a temptation to lean on that for salvation as well. And if you're leaning on that for salvation, you probably aren't saved, right? If you're not leaning on Christ alone for salvation, that's an issue. I like this quote from William Barclay. He said, in every generation, there were some who tried to be stricter than God. <laughs> there were some that knew better than God. So legalism simply can't endure in the face of the gospel. It just is incompatible uh, because the gospel is about thanksgiving. It's about, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Now, you can have opinions. You can have preferences. You can have things that you prefer. But if we're elevating those to salvation issues, we're in trouble and we've made ourselves God uh, in his place. So let's get to verse 1. Uh, first, let me give you an outline. Uh, just real quick, it's only five verses, so it's fairly simple, but I tried to break it up here. One, let's define what the apostasy is. What, what is apostasy? What's happening in apostasy? Two, by what means is this apostasy taking place in Ephesus? And I would argue in verse two, that applies to any kind of apostasy that takes place. What's the content of this apostasy? Again, I've given that away already. Marriage and food are the issues that are on the table. And then to contrast that, what is actually good? How are we to approach these issues? Okay, so verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now there is a lot to unpack in that verse, but here are the terms I want to look at. I want to look at the Spirit. I want to look at later times. Some will fall away. Then what are these deceitful spirits and these doctrines of demons? Interestingly, we start with the Spirit, and notice that it says the Spirit explicitly says. That's an adverb, grammar nerds. Okay? Explicitly says. So Paul is saying the Spirit most definitively said this. Now, when we read this, that kind of brings up a question in our mind because he's not quoting a Scripture verse. He's saying the Spirit explicitly said this, but he doesn't provide a Scripture. So what are we to make of this? Well, we know the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, right? That we know that's who Paul is referring to. And I think what we see here is that we know the Spirit spoke to Paul. We've got contents of visions and dreams and different things that where the Spirit spoke to Paul. We've got prophecy that sends Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journey from Antioch. I think that's most assuredly what he's talking about. So in some way, the Spirit has revealed this explicitly to Paul. Now, we can't claim that. We're not apostles, but Paul can, and that's what he's doing when he says the Spirit explicitly says this. So let's start with that idea. That Spirit, again, is the Holy Spirit. It's the source of prophecy, the source of Scripture inspiration. We see this uh, in Mark thirteen twenty two. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And so he's saying that the Spirit has told us this. Well, the Spirit inspired these scriptures to tell us that false prophets were coming, that there would be this teaching in the last times, that there would be falling away in the last times. In Acts twenty twenty nine, speaking to the elders of this particular church, He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he's saying, you know, the Spirit has told us this. You guys shouldn't be surprised that this is showing up at your doorstep. Christ told us it would come. I told you it would come. And here they are. Now we have to deal with it. So, again, it's not an explicit reference to a particular Scripture, but we see anticipation of these events coming in Scripture. And, again, the Spirit often spoke to and through Paul, so this shouldn't be a surprise. He mentions later times, in later times. Now, sometimes you'll hear this as the last days. 
Well, let's talk about what later times means. And I would say that's a parallel. Later times and last days are the same understanding and time frame, okay? And we view ourselves as living in the last days, do we not? We look around and we think, all right, how much worse could it possibly get (laughs) before Christ comes back? Well, guess what? 2,000 years ago, they were saying the exact same thing. They thought they were living in the last days. And so Christians of all eras have thought that. One of us are going to be right one of these days, but we are in technically in the last days. And if we're defining those parameters, the later times of the last days began at the ascension and are going to culminate in the second coming. That, that's the last day. So we have been in the last days for almost 2,000 years now. Now, we may in our human mind think, well, that seems like an awful long time for the last days. Well, God sets the timetable, not us. And a thousand years is to him is a day and a day is a thousand years. So he kind of exists outside of the time frame. So in Hebrews 1-2, we see this same idea, right? In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so in those last days, we hear from Jesus. Whether that was Jesus on the earth or whether that was through his scriptures, that's how he speaks to us. Now, these last days kind of uh, worldview, setup, perspective is a very Jewish thing. See, the, the, the Jewish perspective was, the Hebrew mind, was that there were two ages. There is the present age, and there is the age to come. Now, they're not entirely wrong about that. Now, they don't, they don't have the full Christian scriptures and the nuances of two comings and all that, but essentially they have this idea that we live in a present age. We are waiting for a coming age. What's the present age like? It's evil, and it's only going to get worse. They were right about that right? They've got that. The age to come would be perfect. It would be good. And what culminated that? What was the turning point to go from one age to the next? The coming of the Messiah, okay? So why are they still waiting for that? Because they didn't recognize Christ as their Messiah, and so they're still waiting for that turning point. We understand that Christ came once. He went back to heaven. He's coming again. We understand the full picture of it. Um, but the, Jew, the Jews also believed that that wouldn't happen until there was one last major struggle. Again, they've got that right. We see that in the Olivet Discourse. We see that in Timothy. We're going to go to a, a passage in just a second. That, that it's going to get worse before the end. In those last days, this is what it's going to look like, and it's not going to be pretty. And what's the day in between those, de- those ages? It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the hinge point in between, sat between the two ages. And when the day of the Lord came, the Jews understood that the world would be shaken to its foundations, that the evil would be defeated and judged, and the new age would dawn. That was their view, and they're not wrong. They've just missed their Messiah. That's the problem. And the New Testament authors maintain that basic framework. We, we, you know, more detailed, but that same basic framework. So let's turn ahead one epistle and go up to 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul goes into a little more detail here. Probably only have to turn a couple pages. Verse 1, he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. These are the same men he's talking about here. He just gives us more detail here. 
For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what did Christians have in Paul's day? What do Christians have today? Well, they held a concept of of imminence in that they knew Christ's coming was coming soon. That, that, that it could happen at any time, and, and that they, they had that emphasis in the last days, but they also saw those last days as kind of a culmination of a last, last period before the coming. Right? I mean, we talk about the Great Tribulation. We talk about the 70th week of Daniel. They have that mindset in their, in their heads, and the culmination of the work of Christ, we saw this in Hebrews 1-2, inaugurated the last days. Once Christ came, died, rose, ascended, what do we have left to wait for? The coming. The coming and the kingdom. That's what we're waiting for. That inaugurates the new age. And so what does Christ do in the meantime? What's the change in the last days? The change is the Holy Spirit. Why does God send the Holy Spirit in the last days? Why did we only have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in this church age? Because, and this is a much longer discussion that I won't get into all tonight, but uh, we've talked about it at Solomon's Porch in different places. The Holy Spirit was saving in the Old Testament too. Okay? We, we didn't have a different version of salvation in the Old Testament, and now we get saved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit always regenerates. If you've got new life in the Bible, whether it's physical life at creation or spiritual life in regeneration, the Spirit is the only one that can do that. Okay? So the Spirit was saving in the Old Testament. So it's not as if, well, we used to get saved by sacrifices, but now we get saved by the Holy Spirit. No, that's not why the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell us. Why was the Holy Spirit sent to indwell us? To give us strength in the last days. To give us boldness in the last days. To give us access to Scripture in the last days. That's why the Holy Spirit is sent in the, in the, in the last days, because we're going to need it. Because it's going to get worse before he comes. And we're going to need to stand strong in this wicked world. And so Christians saw themselves of living the life of the future in the present. They were getting a taste of what it was going to be like in the kingdom. We have the spirit that dwells within us. We have access to the king. One day we're really going to have access to the king. But we've got access to the king right now. It's, it's the future in the present. Think of where, where Paul says in Ephesians 2.6 that we're, we are currently seated in heavenly places with Christ. Well, it doesn't feel like that sometimes. But that's the reality. You are seated there today if you are in Christ. And they anticipated that Christ would come and consummate that work on the day, on that day of the Lord. And so that's what they were looking for. But they knew it was going to get worse before that happened. And in the meantime, what was going to happen was that some would fall away. Now, these that are falling away, that word there is linked to apostasy. And what is apostasy? Well, let's define that too. But these are professing Christians, professing Christians, but not possessing Christians. They say they are Christians, but they are not saved. They didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved. It's that 1 John 2.19. And and, uh, Isaiah and Dave are going to do 1 John in the new uh, Sunday school class. They'll they'll talk about this, this, this idea of apostasy. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Hey, this, is, this is a helpful verse. Because if we didn't have this understanding that there are going to be some that claim Christ, that have no idea who Christ is, think the Matthew 7 crowd. 
right? We, we've cast out demons. We did this. We did that. I, I never knew you. They professed Christ. They never knew Christ. If we didn't understand that there were those kinds of people, then we would assume, well, I guess they lost their salvation. No, but Scripture doesn't let us go there. And so this is this understanding of apostasy is really important. A profession of faith does not guarantee authentic salvation. All of us know someone who once claimed Christ who now does not anymore. Now, are they going through a period in their walk or have they fallen away like this? I don't know. But if they never return, they have fallen away. That's, that's, that's all I can tell you. Perseverance is the mark of the believer. That, that's why we're, all, we're exhorted all the time to persevere in the faith. Why? So, you, so other people don't have to go, and, I wonder if he was saved. I wonder, you know, at your funeral, are they going to have to preach you into heaven, or will they know because you persevered in the faith? This, the, the perseverance in the faith is for our, for our own you know, peace of mind and for those around us and for the church. That's what the church does. The church perseveres. More, more accurately, Christ perseveres in the believer. That's, that's a better way to understand it. But we know that these last days are going to be marked by apostasy, going to be marked by false teachers. And, you know, do I know that's ramping up? No, I don't, but I know when I turn on the TV, I see a lot more false teachers than I used to. When I get on the Internet, I see a lot more false teachers than I used to. It just seems like there's a whole lot of them. And Jesus told us this in Matthew 24. He even said there's going to be false messiahs. There will be people that come claiming to be Messiah. They're not real either. Talks about these deceitful spirits. Let me get back to my text in 1 Timothy. But he says, they will fall away from the faith and they will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, this is strong language, but let's look at this. There are two views on deceitful spirits. One is that we are talking about supernatural entities, divine beings, demons as it were, that are working through individuals. Because this, this idea of a, a, a deceitful spirit, now that's the, the term deceitful spirit only appears here. We don't have it anywhere else in scripture, but we do have several times in the gospels and acts references to unclean spirits. I think that's a parallel phrase. And so Mark one twenty seven, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Or the unclean spirit came out of the man. You'll see that over and over again. I, I think that's probably the best understanding. There is a view that these are the false teachers themselves, that the teachers are deceitful spirits that are leading people astray. Um, that's certainly happening. But if that's true, then this is probably the only time where men are referred to as spirits. That's not a, that's not a common uh, descriptor if that's what he's trying to go to. Not impossible, but I think the first one makes more sense. Second uh, John 1, 7 uses the same term to describe the Antichrist. Uh, and so uh, context-wise, I lean towards the supernatural uh, interpretation, and I think uh, we, we see it more in the following verses, and I think this ties some of the demonic activity that's going on around this. Now, what you're going to see in the following verses, Paul doesn't say it's all the devil's fault. But he says the devil's working, but he's working with sinful people. And sinful people are really easy to manipulate. That, that, so he's, he doesn't say, you know, it's not their fault. They're just all possessed by demons and they're doing this stuff. No, they're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, but they're doing it themselves. Really, they're just pursuing their own fleshly desires. So they are accountable for what they're doing. So let's move to that second term, that doctrines of demons. Again, I think this lends credence to the, the supernatural elements that are at work. Luke twenty two three, and Satan entered into Judas, right? We see this happening. Uh, cannot happen to a believer, but it can happen to a false believer. Judas certainly qualified as that. 
Demonic influence and fallen prideful man results in doctrines that can only be described as evil. That's a really bad combination. <laughs> if you've got a man set on wickedness and evil and the demons get involved, you've got a pretty powerful force of evil going on. Uh, and, 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 when we, and, and really, we've got to read this again in context, right? Because we all kind of fall into this, and I know if we're all orthodox in this room, and I know most of you, and I know most of you are, we believe in demonic forces, right? We believe in the divine. We believe in that fourth dimension that's out there and, and all around us. Um, but sometimes we kind of just go by that because we don't experience demonic possession. We don't see that. We don't, we, didn't, we don't see these things that were happening in Jesus' day on a regular basis. And so in our modern consideration of the devil and demons, I think we do what uh, C.S. Lewis talks about in the Screwtape Letters. He says, we either esteem the devil far too much or we ignore him altogether. We, we, we kind of fall into one category. Either there's a devil behind every bush or he's the cute little guy in the red suit with the pitchfork. Like, that's, that's kind of where we live. Not many people live in the middle. We live on those two ideas, too much credit or ignoring the reality of these things. Hey, to quote one of my favorite movies, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Okay, that, that's, that's better for him. And there's a whole letter in the Screwtape Letters that talks about that. We don't want to appear to them because if they saw us for who we really are, they would run to God. And we don't want that. So we stay hidden. We'd rather be trivialized. We'd rather them not take us seriously. And so doctrines of demons, so deceitful spirits that are deceiving these people, that's what Satan does, is he not? He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. And the doctrines that he is now pushing on these false teachers, putting into their minds, suggesting to them, leading them to, that these teachers are grabbing and running with and teaching with all their own passion, they're doctrines of demons. They have a demonic uh, origin. Now back to the, to the teachers themselves. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. Now you see where the title is. We've got hypocrites and liars. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So in the idea of by means of, okay, so we got deceitful spirits and we got doctrines of demons. But they got, and that's the gasoline, but there's an engine here ready to run. They, they want to run with these doctrines. And so they just pour the fuel on the fire and here we go. And so these teachers are being influenced by demons. They're being used by demons. And at the same time, they're completely responsible for their own actions. They're hypocrites. They're the ravenous wolves that Paul warned these very elders about in Acts 20. They're being carried away by their own selfish desires. And Paul says they're going to come in and they're going to devour the flock. What's happening? They're devouring the flock. And Paul's exhorting Timothy to deal with this. He says they have two character traits. One is hypocrisy. And you got, I got a little illustration up there, and that's how you'll remember. Hupocrisis is the word. That's an easy thing. You can match that up. But it literally means to cover over the face. It's an, it's a, it was used to describe the Greek theater. And if you've ever uh, done any classical Greek theater, not performed in it, but if you've ever read you know, Sophocles and Oedipus and all that kind of stuff, if you ever see how they perform that, there would be very few actors, and they would just switch masks when they were on different roles. And, and that's, that's the picture here. And so a hypocrite wears a mask. You don't see who he really is. He, he portrays something else at the time. This is the charge that Jesus levels at the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 28. You remember Jesus' metaphor in that chapter. They were whitewashed tombs, which appear on the outside to be beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. That's the picture of, of, of hypocrisy. 
Chrysostom said, they utter not their falsehoods through ignorance and unknowingly, but as acting apart, knowing the truth. That's who these people are. They're truly wicked. He calls them liars. Again, a word that makes sense if you kind of look at it. Pseudo, not real, logos, word, false words. That's who these people are. They're liars. And, 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 and I put the Revelation verse up there for one reason. That this identification, by calling them liars, what Paul is saying is that they're not merely people who have been led astray. They're not merely people who are immature in their faith. These are liars. And what happens to all liars? All liars have their place in the lake of fire. So these are not, oh, they're ignorant, they're, they're misguided, they've listened to the wrong guy. No, these are purposeful hypocrites who hide behind another mask. They profess to be Christians, they're not. And they are lying, and they know exactly what they're doing. These are wicked, lost men. That's what he's talking about. John Stott said, hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense, and a lie is a deliberate falsehood. They're double liars. They did not believe their own teaching. They know exactly what they're doing. And, I, I, and if you're like me, I'll, I'll see some of these guys that you see on TV and the Internet. And I kind of wonder, like, is this guy just misguided? Or does he know exactly what he's doing? You know? And I think the ones you know, exactly, some of them are real easy to point out. <laughs> like, yeah, I know what team he's on. The other ones you're like, is he just, does somebody just need to get a hold of him and go, dude, read the Bible. You know, like some guys are like that. But the, these that he's talking about, these are the ones that know exactly what they're doing. And, and the result of that, because they're hypocrites, because they're liars, because they are pursuing their desires, because they are listening to deceitful spirits, they're teaching doctrines of demons, the result is this. They're seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, seared in their own conscience. Now, in contrast to that, Paul has talked much about the conscience in this letter already. Paul loves to talk about the conscience. It's all over Corinthians, but in the, in, in, in just in 1 Timothy, in one five, he said, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In one nineteen, he said, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And in three nine, he said, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Did you notice what was with conscience in every one of those verses? It's faith. Faith and conscience are, 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 are inseparable. Faith is the objective truth of the gospel. The conscience is knowing right and wrong through that real salvific faith. And so here we have a conscience that's seared. There's no faith in this conscience. There's no, there's no goodness in this conscience. It doesn't even feel. It's, it's, it's been seared. And seared as with a branding iron is one word. That's the English way to describe what's going on. The Greek word there is, is kosteriazo. It's the root word of our English word, cauterize. Their conscience has been cauterized. It's been burned, right? Well, why would you cauterize a wound, right? To, to seal it, to numb it, to kill all those nerve endings. You don't feel anything anymore. It's cauterized, and, you know, that's, that's the idea. And so the parallel I, I thought of was Ephesians 4.19, where Paul again describes them and says, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, callous isn't the same word, but it's the same concept. You know, if you get calluses on your hand, you have much less feeling in it than you used to. Okay? Uh, and, and callous is apogeo. It means without feeling. They have made themselves without feeling. Now, so the conscience has been seared to the point that the ability to feel has been killed. The ability to have mercy has been killed. The ability to discern 
The doctrines of demons versus right doctrine has been killed. All of that has been numbed out. And so what does that make them? Willing tools of Satan. They are now free to be pulled in any direction by hypocrisy, lies that they they practice. They're aided in that demonic deception, but they've brought them to a point where recognizing right and wrong is impossible. Can no longer do that. Now, there's another piece of this that I think is really interesting. Uh, This week was the first time I came across it. But based on the context of what I talked about earlier with these deceitful spirits and demonic doctrines, I think I'm I'm, I'm leaning this way. I, I like this interpretation. But another interesting interpretation is that the brand, being seared with a branding iron, is akin to having a mark of Satan. And I think that's interesting when we talk about last days, later times, marks of allegiance to a certain entity or another. I think this is very interesting. So by teaching what was actually false, by adhering to demonic doctrines, not only are they dead and, and, and lost and numb, they have now been put in the camp of Satan. They are now his. They have been branded like a cow. And now they have the mark of Satan upon him. And if they have the mark upon him, he does, they now do his will. And so if they think they're doing their will, they're actually doing his will. And so considering the context of the deceitful spirits and the demonic doctrines, I think that could be a very accurate understanding of what's going on here. And again, the last day's context really brings that idea of a mark. Who are you identified with? You know, Do I know what the mark of the beast is? No, I don't. Does it have to be a literal mark? I don't know. Who knows? But I know it is a mark that, that, that marks you out as belonging to this group or this group. And, and, and that's kind of what we have here. A, a brand that was in an identifiable spot for a piece of livestock or a slave would have said, I belong to this master. That, I think that may be what's going on here. First, and here's the process, they turned a deaf ear to their conscience. Then, and when they turned a deaf ear again and again and again, what happened to their conscience? It became cauterized. It became seared. Next, if the conscience is seared, they have no problem lying. They have no problem being hypocritical. So that moves them to the next line. Then they expose themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits and demonic doctrines. And finally, they lead people to abandon faith. That's the process, and, and, and I, that identifies them completely with their father, the devil. And, that, that's how, that, and when he calls, again, when he calls them hypocrites and liars, he's not saying, well, you know, maybe they'll be okay. No, these are wicked men. They're on their way to judgment. Don't follow them. All right, now what are they saying? What's the content of the apostasy? It's in verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, a couple points before we begin. We know that Paul is not against singleness. Right? Paul leaves that door open uh, for people. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, he says that. Remember, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And then in verse 33, he goes on and says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So Paul says there are cases like Paul himself, where the person is meant to be single so that they can be more devoted to service to the Lord. But Paul is also very aware, because he talks about it often, that marriage is the norm. He knows that most people are going to be married. He knows the majority of people will be married at some point, and so he pushes that as the norm. The second part is when we talk about food. Paul is not against practicing specific diets. 
You know, he tells the Jews, if you want to keep kosher, keep kosher. But don't be a stumbling block to everybody else while you're doing it. You know, you, that, that, that food is a, is a choice idea. It, you can be a vegetarian, you can be vegan, you can be keto, you can be paleo, you can do whatever you want to do. But don't make other people do it for the sake of holiness and, and all that. And, and, and by the way, Romans 14.2 tells us that vegetarianism was practiced in Paul's day. Right? He says if somebody wants to only eat vegetables, he says they're weak. So I don't know if you want to practice that. You know, you got to go with that label. He also even says in to Timothy, right, a little wine will be good for your stomach, right? Digestive issues. And so, you know, those that are saying no wine ever, I don't know if you got an argument from Scripture. Preferences, do what you want to do. Then he says that they, they forbid marriage. So let's talk about that idea. They forbid marriage. And we'll get to 1 Corinthians 7 in just a second. We're going to turn there in a minute. But it was an issue there as well. But we know the marriage issues were always prevalent in the church because Paul addresses the situation with young widows when we get to chapter 5. Because the question is, okay, they were married, now they're widowed. What, what do they do? What's the best approach? And he's going to give them advice on that. And, and perhaps those widows were the vulnerable ones in the congregation that were being targeted by these false teachers. And so the, the marriage issue is always there. Um, most likely, these men are teaching that refusing to marry was the means to a higher degree of holiness. That singleness was better than being married. That, that led you to this higher state of holiness or perhaps even higher state of knowledge. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 7 real quick and read that. Because this, this colors in some of what we're talking about. And it seems to be a very similar issue there. Similar issue, but different perpetrators of that issue. And I'll explain that. <clears throat> and I feel like we've got to read 1 to 9 to get the whole picture. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, so the Corinthians were asking these questions, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and to each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duties to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself I am. Uh, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this man and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So in Corinth, Paul was encountering Greeks who questioned marriage, opposed marriage, and it was probably based on a Greek concept, a, a pagan concept which, and this is early Gnosticism, that the body was evil. The matter was evil, the body was evil, spirit was good. And so don't indulge your flesh because that's only going to take you to bad places. Anything you do in your flesh is evil. Everything has to be spiritual and you have to come to a new level of knowledge to achieve all that. Uh, and so the human body is evil, so marriage was discouraged. Uh, sex was discouraged. And, and again, that later became the emphasis in Gnosticism. So I think that's what's going on in Corinth. In Ephesus, I think it's different. And we've established this back in chapter 1, the talk of the law. It seems like the controversy in Ephesus is from a Jewish teacher or Jewish teachers. Remember, they think they know the law, but they actually don't know what they're talking about. I think that's where we've got it. And so they, in Ephesus, they're discouraging marriage, probably not the same way they are in Corinth. 
the heresy that Paul is encountering in Ephesus uh, has this Jewish flavor to it, and, and Judaism doesn't have any inherent uh, avoidance of marriage or sex. There's nothing about that in Judaism. And so the, the error about marriage in Ephesus is probably a, a tendency by converted Jews uh, who were living in a pluralistic setting. They're living in a, in a wicked Roman Empire, and they're going, we're going to run all the way over to this side. And, and avoid marriage altogether because I don't want to fall into any traps. And so they throw out the baby with the bathwater. I, I think that's probably what they're saying. And, and, and in doing so, they, in, in their attempts to run from sexual immorality, they were actually fostering the conditions for sexual immorality. That you're not meant to do that. And so when you put yourself in that situation, you actually make the temptations worse. You actually make it more likely that you're going to commit sexual sin. Not to throw anybody under the bus, but, you know, look at recent history within the Catholic Church. Right? That there are major issues forcing men to be celibate that, aren't, that don't have the gift that Paul's talking about. Bad things happen when you put people in a position like that. And, and I think that's probably what was going on here in Ephesus. And so this false teaching that seemed kind of benign, well, you don't need to get married, go ahead and do this, was actually causing much more immorality than what it was solving. And, and, and so back to seven, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying or the matters about which they're talking about. These men are leading people astray. The second part is food. And you think, well, what's the big deal about Well, food was a much bigger deal <laughs> at that time. The Jewish Gentile food thing was a big deal. We talked about it in Acts with Peter and Cornelius and all that. But it, 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 this was an issue in Colossae as well. So we've got the marriage issue in Ephesus and Corinth. We've got the food issue in Ephesus and right down the road in Colossae. So it's right there. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there real quick and read these verses from Col- uh, Colossians. If you want to turn, you can. Um, we can race. Uh, try to get there first. Um, there's such little letters in here, you skip right over them. All right, verse 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says in verse 20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That sums it up very well. So, again, this is probably Jewish in origin. The Jews are the ones that always had the food problems. Right? That, that's, that's, that's what was, that wasn't a problem in the pagan empire. The pagans ate everything. Right? So it's, it must be Jewish in origin, probably the mosaic distinctions, probably keeping kosher, clean versus unclean. And, and Paul, again, is not saying avoidance of certain foods because of your conscience, because you would rather be healthy, is not acceptable or advisable. You are free to do that. You can eat or not eat, whatever you like. But if it's being held up as part of your salvation... If it's being held up as part of your holiness or a way to become more holy, it's unacceptable. And in other words, asceticism is fine. You know what asceticism is? It's basically throwing off all, you know, I want to go live in a cave somewhere and be a hermit. If you want to be ascetic, that John the Baptist was one, you know, there's some good guys that were ascetics. You can go do that. But theological asceticism doesn't have a place in the Christian faith. There's no such thing as, well, if I don't eat that, I'll be more holy. If I don't I'll be more holy. There's, there, that's, not, that's not there. 
And Paul characterizes all manner of food as, which God has created to be gratefully shared in. That's the whole Peter vision. That's the pigs in the blanket vision, right? Like you can eat all this stuff. Right? This is, just be grateful to God that you have it. And by the way, I just want to take a little bit of sidebar. I think I got time. This m- misunderstanding had far-reaching effects. And I would argue there's probably still manifestations of it today. But in the second century, uh, Irenaeus, perhaps you've heard of Irenaeus. He's a church father. He deals with this same issue. In his, in his great work called Against Heresies. A fourth century document called the Apostolic Canon says this, if any overseer, priest, or deacon, or anyone on the priestly list abstains from marriage and flesh and wine, not on the ground of asceticism, that is for the sake of discipline, but through abhorrence of them as evil in themselves, forgetting that all things are good, and that God made man, male, and female, that's appropriate today, isn't it? But blaspheming and slandering the workmanship of God, either let him amend or be deposed and cast out of the church, likewise the layman also. It was still going on in the 4th century. They were still dealing with it then. Interestingly enough, it was the 4th century when this view, this practice kind of reached its peak. If you read the church fathers, you would be rather shocked to read many of them supported some weird perspectives on sex and marriage. It's very strange. Guys like uh, Tertullian and Ambrose and uh, Augustine and Aquinas, people that, you, you know, you might not have read their works, but you recognize a lot of those names, they considered sexual intimacy to be a sin even in the marriage relationship. There were instances like that. What, what was the result? Well, the result was monasteries. How would you like to go live there? <laughs> That is the St. George Monastery. It's a Greek Orthodox monastery. It was built in the 5th century. It's uh, down the road from Jericho, but it's literally built into the side of a mountain. It's there in the Judean wilderness. And at that time, the four, starting in about the 4th century, probably due to much of this errant teaching that had lasted for all these centuries, monks would go away and live in the desert. They would cut themselves off from other people. They spent their lives in self-denial and physical deprivation. I've got a few little anecdotal stories of some of these monks. One never ate cooked food because he didn't want to be fleshly in any way. Let that sink in. No flesh. Can't even consume flesh, so he didn't cook any food. Uh, another stood all night by this jutting rock because, so it was impossible for him to sleep. Uh, another was famous because he allowed his body to become so dirty and neglected that they said that vermin dropped from him while he walked. Think pig pen from peanuts. Like, it's like a little cloud following him everywhere he goes. Hey? He said a clean body necessarily means an unclean soul. If you're taking all that time to take showers, you're certainly not devoting enough time to prayer. Um, another one ate, deliberately ate salt in the midsummer and abstained from drinking water. The, these are the things they were doing. And, and, and unfortunately, these errant teachings... Uh, it, within the Catholic Church didn't really subside. In the 16th century of the Council of Trent, they confirmed at that council that virginity was superior to being married. That virginity was superior to being married. They, they continued in subsequent years, they kept doubling down on this, that by forbidding sexual intimacy on the part of married couples on specific days of the year, They said, on these calendar days, you cannot participate with your spouse. And when all was said and done, over half the calendar year was marked off. Okay? No wonder there was a reformation. Good gracious. Okay? Well, when did did this change within the church? Well, it's very interesting. Believe it or not, 
the group that fought to reestablish a correct biblical sexual ethic? The Puritans, those wild-eyed Puritans, right? <laughs> they, they did. Now, isn't that, isn't that ironic? Because the word puritanical is a bad thing to be nowadays. No, the Puritans uh, talk about this in his book, Worldly Saints, uh, about the Puritans. Uh, Leland Riken writes this, The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed on the cultural history of the West. The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companion at marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, established the ideal of wedded romantic love, and exalted the role of the wife. That was the Puritans. Okay? So thank you, Puritans, uh, for getting us back on track. But isn't it, again, ironic that this is the group that is often labeled by the world as oppressive and, and, and buttoned up and all this stuff? Why is that the case? Because I think Satan knows who to attack. He knows there's truth there, so he goes ahead and throws them under the bus so people don't respect what the Puritans have to say, even though they give us the biblical ethic. Back to the food. That uh, food is what God has created. And Jesus talked about this. Mark seven eighteen. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? And Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Even before Peter saw his vision, Jesus had said that. Again, there's the vision in Acts 10. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. That applied to food and people, by the way, in that vision. And so in doing things like that, in rejecting what God has created and calling what is good unclean, they were insulting God. They were blaspheming God. He's the creator of the world. And over and over again, if you're reading through Genesis, every day he finishes creation, what does God say about his creation? It's good. It's good. Kent Hughes says, it is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a guilty conscience in matters where there is no offense. Uh, He says, the creation of ascetic conscience that can soothe you by a fleshly abstention can anesthetize you to the inner demands of the spirit. The trick is to hide your inner wickedness by outward observance. So you can take pride in the fact that I'm disciplined in what I eat. I do this, I do that. Yeah, but you're a hateful person and you're, a, you know, you're this and that. That's okay, but I'm disciplined in that. I can salve my conscience by saying I'm good at this. Just focus on this. And that, I'm in control of that. I don't have to submit to do that, right? Legalism also serves as, I, I like this term, it serves to create a compensatory righteousness. Legalism creates a compensatory righteousness. What do I mean by that? That when you find, uh, back to what I was talking about, when you can't abstain from selfishness or greed or cruelty or gossip, you attempt to find righteousness in something you can control. And if I can say, and, and, and they get, this is in screw tape as well, he says, you know, if he's happy with these little things over here that don't mean anything that he's in control of, let him be obsessive about that. Don't let him address his real problems. Don't let him address his real sins. Let him be happy going, I go to church every Sunday. Let them be, be dealing with things that don't really matter. Um, if you attempt to acquire righteousness by abstaining from things that God has left you free to do, <laughs> you're going to have a problem. All right. Who's the audience? Uh, I already talked about that. By those who believe and know the truth. Like if you know God, if you know the gospel, if you have an understanding of these things, th- these are who they're trying to convince. And, and that those who believe and know the truth know better than all this stuff. Not that believers alone are able to eat, but that believers alone are able to have pure fellowship around a table and express gratitude for the provisions that the Lord has given us. We understand that everything we have comes from God. That's the, that's the privilege that we have. Remember, also, hospitality is a big deal in the church. 
And, and a huge part of hospitality is to share food around the table. And if we're talking about a Gentile Jewish church where foods, certain foods are clean, certain foods are not, certain people are clean, certain people are not, you're not going to be able to have table fellowship. If I can't sit around a table and have lunch with you, how am I going to worship in the same building as you, sit on the same pew as you? It's not going to happen. That would be impossible. And so what Paul is saying here is only the believer sees through the superficial nature of what these false teachers are doing. And what do we find? Gratitude and joy. That God has given us gifts and we are meant to enjoy them. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Everything. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Paul elaborates here on the food issue, but not the marriage issue, probably because he's already dealt with marriage earlier. He talked about the marriage with the elders and with the deacons, um, with child rearing and management of one's household and all that. I do want you to notice that it's not everything is good. It's everything created by God is good. I kind of thought about, you know, a strawberry is good. Strawberry Sunday, not so healthy. I mean, it's good, but, (laughs) you know, they're not the same thing, you know. Um, I, and I think more, a, a more important thing is uh, God created male and female and a sexual relationship within marriage. That's good. The way human beings employ that gift outside of marriage and in other aberrant ways, not good. So it's not just that that is, it's how God created and designed it. In that sense, it is good. There's no dualism in creation. Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. There's not, well, there's some good things and some bad. No, if God created it, it's good. God cannot create evil. He doesn't do that. Romans 14, 14, Paul says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. If it was created by God, it is good. One commentator said, he created them, and in consequence, because of this, every one of them is excellent. Everything God creates is excellent. And he says, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Hey, we, we, we see this from Jesus himself. He takes up the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blesses the food. He, Jesus said grace. He blessed the food. Why? Because James 1.17 tells us that every good thing given, every good thing given and every perfect gift is what? From above. That we know everything we have comes from him. Well, what's the implication after all this? Well, a thankless heart can transform good food into unacceptable food. If you are consuming gluttonously, selfishly for your own design, even if it's healthy stuff to make yourself more disciplined, more holy, more this, you're, that you've taken gratitude away because you're doing this on your own. It, it, it'd be kind of like it, we, we recognize the silliness of this, that if we offered up this wonderful prayer to God and then drank a fifth of Jack Daniels, like I, the prayer doesn't cover you, brother. You're, you're drunk. <laughs> You know, it's not, well, I just, I could put some words on this. No, it's this heart attitude of gratefulness and why we do the things we do and why we don't do other things. Okay? Verse 5, why? For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Another interesting verse. What does Paul mean that when we, when we talk about gratitude, if we go back to that, that verse 4, everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it's sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Well, a few options, and I'll tell you where I land. One, one option is that it's a reference to Genesis 131, and that God's pronouncement of good makes all food holy. So whatever you eat is already holy because God said it was good. Number two, it refers to the act of blessing food, uh, like literally praying before meals, and that we should include scripture references in our prayers. Okay? Number three is it refers to a correct approach to food because of the gospel. 
described here is the word of God, which results in prayers and gratitude. If I had to be pressed, I think it's number three. Now, the good thing is there's nothing wrong theologically with any of these, but I think it's number three. The issue with number one is uh, it's, it's uh, linguistic there. It's is sanctified. It's a present tense verb. So if he was talking about Genesis 131, it, a perfect tense would have been a better understanding. Number two, God's word is cleansing. And so the argument would be if you speak God's word over the food, you have removed any uncleanness. I, I don't think that's why we pray. <laughs> I think we pray, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if you sit down to the buffet and have all the food on the buffet in front of you and you go, Lord, bless us and nourish our bodies. You know, you could say that all day long, but if you got two pieces of pie and some biscuits and gravy on it, I'm not sure he can make that not make you fat. You know, I don't think that, you can't remove the uncleanness from the food. I think the idea is gratitude. I think it comes back to that. And the whole idea is I understand the gospel. I understand what God has given me. I understand what he's provided. I understand his grace. And therefore, I have a great a grateful heart for all that. I know that food laws are ridiculous. I know that God has given me these things. Okay? Now, you know, blessing the food doesn't add additional sanctity over and above what it already has. Why do we pray? Because it, it sets the food in its true perspective as a gift from God, as a provision. I am thankful that God has provided this for me. And, and it's, a, it's a gift from God, and we're to be thankful. And, and, and not just food. I'll close with a quote from G.K. Chesterton, and there's not a cooler looking guy on the planet uh, than G.K. I don't think he owned a brush. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's some great stories. If you, G.K. Chesterton was a British man. He was a writer. Um, they, they, they said he, he, he weighed almost 300 pounds. He was six foot four in the early 20th century. I mean, he, you knew he was there. Uh, during World War I, a woman came up to him and said, uh, why aren't you at the front? And he said, well, if you rock around to the other side, you'll see that I'm there. Uh, he was a big guy. Um, they said he would absent, he, he seems to kind of be the savant of sorts. He would wander around and forget where he was going and all that, but he would write this amazing literature. But he says this, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in ink. What does he mean? He's not saying don't pray before food. What he's saying is we should approach all aspects of life with this. That everything I do, I couch with gratefulness to God. Certainly there are times for self-denial and discipline in our lives. Uh, but these are things we do not do because we are Christians, right? That, that's the idea. Uh, I'll read another quote from Stott. <clears throat> he said, we should determine then to recognize and acknowledge, appreciate and celebrate all the gifts of the creator. And, and it just uh, it's long, but bear with me. He says, the glory of the heavens and of the earth of mountain, river, and sea, of forest and flowers, of birds, beasts, and butterflies, and of the intricate balance of the natural environment, the unique privileges of our humanness, rational, moral, social, and spiritual. As we were created in God's image and appointed his stewards, the joys of gender, marriage, sex, children, parenthood, and family life, and of our extended family and friends, the rhythm of work and rest, of daily work as a means to cooperate with God and serve the common good, and of the Lord's Day when we exchange work for worship, the blessings of peace, freedom, justice, and good government, of food and drink, clothing and shelter, and our human creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, sculpture and drama, and in the skills and strengths displayed in sport. The Christian life's not meant to be lived in the negative, it's meant to be lived in the positive. We thank the Lord for what he's given us. Jesus has showed us that example. We're to be saying grace every minute of our lives. 
This isn't some rote thing we do before meals. No, we live in an attitude of graciousness. It's the same thing when Paul says, pray without ceasing. And you go, how do you do that? It's that you're always in an attitude of prayer. That at any given moment, you are offering up prayers and thanksgivings to God. Same idea here, that that we are always to be thankful every minute of our lives. Why? Because that gives glory to God. It, It points back to our creator, our provider, our sustainer. That's, that's what Paul is trying to say. You've got all these people putting up all these ridiculous rules and saying you'll be more holy. It's like an like infomercial. You know, call in, buy this, you'll be more holy, you'll be more spiritual, you'll be more this. Well, I got the gospel, I don't need that. <laughs> I, I, I pursue Christ, that's what I do, that's what I've been called to do. <clears throat> and I don't do it to make myself look better, I do it to glorify him. So that's, that's the picture, that's, that's the answer to standing against false teaching. Stand on the gospel, go to the scriptures, preach the word. And, and that looks ridiculous in comparison to what we have. So, Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. I thank you for your grace, for your gospel, uh, for the holiness and righteousness that only you can give. Lord, conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to remain focused on you, to be an attitude of prayer, an attitude of thanksgiving, that we would say grace every minute of our lives, that we would know who you are and, and, and what you are doing, what you've done, what you're going to do, because we trust you fully as our our King, our Lord, our Savior. Lord, bless us as we go. I pray we would have opportunities to serve you this week, that our thoughts, our our speech, our actions would glorify you, and um, that we would come back together on Sunday as a body again to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.